Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Judge Whitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. I'm so hungry. <laughs> I said I wasn't going to complain about that. Yeah, Dang it. we're recording this on Wednesday. <laughs> I was doing so well. Anyway, happy Ash Wednesday to you. I, I've always felt weird about yeah. saying happy Ash Wednesday, happy but Ash it, Wednesday. it feels like there is no <laughs> other way to mark the day. So um, happy it is. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And we don't have, I don't even have the markings of the day yet. Are you going to, are you going to get ashes somewhere? You know, I am going to venture out here in a little bit. I, uh, not sure if normally I haven't had to like, <laughs> this is a privileged problem. I understand. But when you work in an office with a bunch of priests, um, <laughs> yeah. the ashes just kind of come to you. Um, instead, yep. you know, I haven't had to go look for my own ashes in a, in a long time. So I'm, I'm pretty out of practice. Yeah, no, I think St. Boniface is giving them out at 5.30, so I might be able to try to make it over there after work. Yeah, but either way, they're not. I don't think they're going on your forehead, right? Because a lot of places are uh, sprinkling them on the top of your head now yes. uh, to help reduce you know, the spread of the coronavirus, which is a good move. Um, and it's actually an ancient thing. Anyway, that's not what we're getting into today. Uh, who, who are we? To- we do have a really exciting Lenten surprise for you, though, today. Yes, we do. We are talking to Father Richard Rohr. Uh, this is someone, whenever we've asked our our audience who they want to hear from, his name is at the top of the list. Um, and it was such a privilege to get to talk to him. Holy moly. Just, you know, someone who's on a totally, like, different level. On the one hand, you know, he, he's so holy. You can just tell talking to him and reading him. And a lot of insight uh, from over the years. But on the other hand, very personal, very easy to talk to. Um, and we really had just a fantastic conversation that that ran long. And you know what? We're going to we're going to give the whole thing to you. We're not we're not cutting like we usually do uh, down for some content. Um, so this in, this is going to be a different episode than you're normally used to, but we think it's going to be worth it. Yeah. So it's no signs of the times or consolations and desolations. But once you once you hear our conversation with Richard Rohr, I think you'll understand why we wanted to give it some space. Um, but we did want to talk a little bit about the the season we're entering into today, Lent, um, in this very unusual year. Uh, so, Zach, how are how are you approaching Lent? I am. You know, normally Lent is a time where I find myself racked with a should or should not, and and and, and this pandemic year is made that even more neurotic where I'm like, oh, you know, things have already been hard enough. And I'm like, (laughs) well, you would say that if you needed to do more, wouldn't you? Um, But I, I, I have tried to be gentle with myself and, and learned that, you know, the, the, 
the mm. you should do this, you should do that doesn't necessarily always come from the voice of God. So I have been been on standby. Um, but I actually was really, really moved by uh, America published what its editors and writers were we're doing for Lent this year, and, and you contributed a contribution to Ashley, which I think you'll talk about in a second. I did not because I was resisting uh, the, the the sort of we, we they were asked in advance, and I was really looking to decide at the last moment um, as to avoid any type of scruples. Um, but reading reading like what other yeah. people are doing, I don't know. Everyone everyone's had a hard year, right? And people and it's been hard in varying different degrees, but people are still trying to just like in their own tiny little way, like become better Christians and better people. And I, I found myself like so inspired by, by that just, I don't know. It feels like a, a pretty typical <laughs> Catholic experience to like, you know, do religion together, but not really talk about our feelings and what's going on inside. And so to see other people that I work with every day, um, be a little bit more vulnerable about that gave me a lot of freedom and space to just say like, Okay, God, what do we really want to do this year? Yeah, I love that. I did. I did contribute to that article, and <laughs> I'm going to need your help keeping me accountable because I said I'm not going to work after hours. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, so for for this year, I'm just picking up the slack that Ashley's <laughs> leaving behind by not working as much. Um, so that's my Lent and penance. Not sure how I ended up with that uh, end of the stick, but no. But I. But you were a little bit more forthcoming about why, right? Oh yeah. So I. I over this year during the pandemic, I've been, you know, working from home, which is a great privilege that I have a job and then I can do it remotely and safely. But that comes with uh, the problem of my my bedroom and my kitchen and my dining room uh, are also my uh, office. And my laptop is always just sitting there um, beckoning me to get a head start on tomorrow's work. Um, and and I thought, you know, in this in this time um, when we're called uh, to draw closer to God. Um, I needed to make time for that. And that means, you know, turning off the Slack notifications, Xing out the Google Docs and um, freeing up my evenings for for being open to open to that relationship and to other people in my life. So that's the plan for this Lent. <laughs> that, no, and I, I think it's, as your friend and colleague, I think it's a good one for you. I am always shocked at how clean you keep your your space because um, it's always in the background of everything, but it's also every room that you have. Um, mm -hmm. That is a benefit of living in, in a little studio. It you know it takes five minutes to clean the entire place. <laughs> yeah. But also, you can't see what's um, stuffed in my closet from the, from the Zoom screens. <laughs> <laughs> that's very fair. But it was that. I mean, like that's the type of I don't know. Reading that and. I don't know. This is the benefit of being in faith communities, right? Like this is why mm -hmm. we we do it. Um, led me to kind of discern the things I'm doing. So I am trying to, I'm, you know, you'll hear a recommendation from Father Richard Rohr for Lent in this episode. So I'm, I'm taking him up on that. Um, but I'm also um, doing a sun up, sundown fast with my, my men's group at my parish. Um, start That started today. So we're doing it on Ash Wednesday and all the Fridays during Lent. Um, and then we're, we're taking some of the money that we would save for lunch and giving some alms to some local communities in the neighborhood nice that's that's something i've thought about this year especially because like as you said it's kind of like a cliche at this point to be like oh my gosh do i really have to give anything up this lent when we've given up so much but it's 
it was a good reminder for me that like, yeah, maybe maybe this isn't the year where I give up chocolate, but um, almsgiving is also a part of the season of Lent. And at this time when when I am lucky enough to have a job and so many people are are suffering, it, it might be a good opportunity to focus on that pillar. It's true. I feel like it's, you know, the forgotten third leg of, of Lent. Prayer and fasting usually mm-hmm. get a lot of <laughs> a lot of attention, but it's true. Almsgiving is there, there as well. Um, and, and, you know, one of my big takeaways from both this conversation and my prayer thus far is that, you know, Lent is easier when you're not doing it alone. Um, and we wanted to let you know that America is, you know, there to journey and accompany you this Lenten season. Uh, we, the team here has put together a lot of Lenten resources. Primarily, you, you might have already noticed um, some new reflections in your podcast feed if you're subscribed to The Word. Um, if you're not, you should. Um, we've got reflections coming out basically every every other day um, from America staff and writers. Ashley, you've con- you contributed one, right? Yep, I'll be there, I think, in week two of, of Lent, so... Look forward to that. Yep, and Father James Martin uh, kicked off the season on Ash Wednesday. You can go back and listen to that. Um, so check that out. And we've got uh, those, the written reflections that people are recording and essays, uh, homily, scripture reflections, all kinds of things all together in one place. You can find all of that at americamagazine.org slash Lent 2021. Again, that's americamagazine.org slash Lent 2021. Uh, don't, don't do it alone. And if you're at a loss for what to do, just go check that out. There's lots of stuff there. And now before we get to our conversation with Father Richard Rohr, we wanted to say a few words about our sponsor this week. So uh, longtime listeners of the show, and maybe not that long, you've probably picked up on this already, will uh, we'll know that uh, my, my co-host Ashley does not always have the most sophisticated uh, taste in our, in our drinks <laughs> of the week. Uh, it never ceases to amaze me that, you know, we talk about some controversial uh, topics on this show, and yet so often it's my drink choice that, that gets me in hot water. <laughs> I don't know if you've recovered from your definition of an Irish coffee. <laughs> That will go with me to my grave. But our sponsor this week has a great solution to making you a little bit more educated, Ashley. Uh, this It's brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, and we've been digging into their everyday guide to wine course recently. It, it's great. Wine is amazing. I, I, I love to drink it, but let's be honest, it's it can be really confusing, right? There There's so much you know hoity-toity snootiness around it that it can feel like... If you're ordering anything other than the cheapest thing on the menu, you might as well. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to know the difference between like a really good bottle and the cheapest one, but it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. No, I'm very excited about this. You know, every every Monday I have my little group that watches <laughs> The Bachelor and you can't watch The Bachelor without a bottle of wine. And I would love to come to that more equipped to make a good decision. <laughs> about what what we're drinking that week. Yeah. And whether you are a novice like Ashley and I or you have already meddled in the wine world, this is the course for you. Uh, it, it goes over, you know, the basics of how wine is made, some of the the most popular regions around the world, how to how to order wine at a restaurant or at your local wine shop. That's a big that's a big one for me. I I, I always feel very overwhelmed when someone hands me a wine list. Um, this this is the course for you, and we have great news. The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners. Uh, an entire month free when they sign up. So you can check out this course and thousands of others. All you have to do is visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical to get that free month. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Jesuitical. 
Up next, our conversation with Father Richard Rohr, and you might want to sit down for this one. Joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Father Richard Rohr. Father Richard is a Franciscan priest, author of several well-known books on spirituality, including his latest, The Universal Christ, and the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in New Mexico. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father Richard. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I Both Ashley and I were psyched to do this, and I know that our audience is going to love this. Yes, we regularly have polls of who we should talk to, and, and Father Richard is at the top of them. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm glad to be with you. The Jesuits have always been good to me, so I'm I use every chance to be good back. Well, thank you. You know, that actually leans into my first question quite well, because we are, of course, called Jesuitical, but we, on occasion, will, you know, look outside the box a little and talk with a Franciscan or two. Um, But I'm wondering if you could perhaps help uh, ourselves understand, you know, maybe what the foundational, in your opinion, approach or or way of proceeding uh, of, of Franciscan spirituality is. Well... You know, up to the 13th century, there was really only one major form of religious life, and it was monasticism. We mostly associate it with Benedictine tradition. And Francis was the first great break from that. He wanted us to live not on the edge of town in large monasteries, which became worlds unto themselves, but he wanted us to live in little communities in the middle of the city, close to the people and close to the poor. That's it in a nutshell. So we, we are not called monks. We're called friars. And then after the movement of the friars in the 13th century, the next great movement is the good Jesuits yes. that you work with. Yeah. Yes, who also moved to the middle of the city. So what, what makes you different than the Jesuits? Well, they emphasized education, at least in America, not always in Europe. Uh, but they became associated, rightly so, with good thinking and good theology and uh, getting good educations themselves. Um Education was never our priority. Ours was always the poor, mission work, uh, going to the new lands, which is what brought us here to New Mexico 400 years ago. I'm wondering if there's a maybe like a theological or spiritual, you know, the Jesuits are of course known for good thinking, but the Franciscans have some heavy hitters, you know, in the canon themselves. Is there, and I think it looms large in, in your book that we're going to be talking about today, The Universal Christ, is there uh, a sort of fundamental viewpoint from which a Franciscan theology or spirituality operates out of? Well, I'm glad you mentioned The Universal Christ, because that's it. Because of Francis's nature-based, creation-based spirituality, not university-based, not academic-based, uh, from the very beginning— we emphasized uh, creation as the first Bible. That would be strongly represented in fathers of the church like St. Bonaventure. He says, start with a stone and learn to see the presence of God in a stone. Uh, 
then go to water, then go to uh, plants, then go to animals. Climb your way up so you can finally love God, but love all these previous things before. So it's much more nature-based, which has prepared us for the ecological concerns so many of us have today. I'm glad you said that because so I I was an animal lover growing up. I even like I tried to pick St. Francis as my saint name and my teacher was like, no, you have to pick a girl. And I was like, I love animals. <laughs> um, but I've always wondered if if that was kind of like, you know, in the popular imagination, St. Francis is always surrounded by animals. But it sounds like there's something that's not just like a surface thing. It's There's oh, something no. deeply true. And very there. true. In his oldest biographies, he's talking to birds and <laughs> saving little <laughs> pigs and <laughs> they're a beautiful story. Yeah. yeah. And what does that tell us about how they view Jesus? Yeah, well, you you see how it's body based. Mm-hmm. It's not idea based. It's it's incarnational spirituality as we would call it now. The idea of the word becoming flesh and the flesh becoming the place of the divine encounter. That was at the heart of Franciscanism, and it still is. So uh, in, in many ways, our, our historic themes are very much coming to the head today, to our great gratitude, uh, because so many are accusing Christianity of having ignored the body Perhaps you're aware of that. Which is not uh, unfounded, I would say, right? No, I'm afraid it isn't, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it does It does sort of clash um, with, I guess, common notions of Christianity. Um, you, you, you write in the book that many people use Jesus and Christ interchangeably, um, or as you put it, think of Christ as Jesus's last name. Um, yes. But in the universal Christ, you, you make this distinction at, between Jesus, who is our... The, the embodied third person of the Trinity, who is you know fully man, fully divine, um, and the second person of the Trinity. Yes, se- <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to correct you, but <laughs> no, I need it. So he's the second we person don't of the want Trinity. Them to think we're heretics. Go ahead, go ahead. So I'm gonna I'm gonna retape that. We can edit my heresy out. <laughs> so you make this distinction between Jesus, who is the embodied second person of the Trinity, um, who's both fully man and fully divine, and also the cosmic Christ or the Christ mystery, which I, I, I get on some level, but b- could you sort of like bare bones, like what is the fundamental difference between Jesus and Christ and, and why is that so important to make? Well, first of all, don't feel stupid. It is such a paradigm shift for most people that they have a hard time making it because they grew up with Jesus Christ lumping the two realities together. Let me try it this way. The Christ existed since the moment of the Big Bang, as we would call it now, the confluence of matter and spirit. Whenever matter and spirit operate as one, we have the Christ mystery, uh, the incarnation, if you will. So that solves the problem of God's interest in the world from the very beginning. He is not distant. She is not distant. God is not apart, but is in the unfolding of creation. St. Bonaventure, who I mentioned before, 
would be like the Teilhard de Chardin of the 13th century, who's seeing it all evolving with the Christ energy at, at the center of things. Jesus then, only 2,000 years later, I mean, from now, 2,000 years from now, is a personification of this universal mystery. Let me say it again, a personification of this universal mystery, uh, who makes it lovable, believable, credible, seeable, touchable, as the first letter of John says. So uh, as some of the sermons in the <clears throat> Acts of the Apostles say, Jesus became the Christ, or Jesus revealed the Christ. But because that's such a different way of thinking for almost all Western Christians, except historic Franciscans, we were the exception. Our Christology was based on the first chapter of Ephesians and the first chapter of Colossians, which started with the Christ, and out of the Christ, Jesus was born. And you have a, you have a sentence in your book uh, that, you know, as a Jesuit ministry caught me off guard. You said, there's a reason we're called Christians and not Jesuits. Yeah, uh, which, we, which we did take personally. So, <laughs> Ouch. So too clever an opportunity. Uh -huh. yeah. So, but, but are you, is, are you implying there that the Christ is more important than Jesus or more fundamental? Well, what are you, what are you saying uh, there? It's a broader notion. It's a universal notion, which allow, allows us to be much more interfaith with the other world religions, because now we're not in competition. Uh, mm. if, if all we have is Jesus, which is to have an awful lot, by the way, but um, we, we, it's hard to move beyond Judaism. It's hard to move beyond Israel. It's hard to move beyond ethnicity. And 2,000 years ago, which, as you know, is a blip on the screen of time. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I, no. Well, no, I guess when I was reading, <laughs> I... I am in, in. I would say I'm inclined to someone to love this, but I even felt in myself like I could feel my walls going up a little bit. And that... Because, because I'm like, well, because. it feels like you're taking Jesus off his pedestal, and 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 that's a very important <laughs> pedestal. I, I I firmly believe, and and I, and then I really had to check myself and sit with that, and you know, where is this? Where is this coming from? Without Jesus, the whole thing becomes abstruse uh, theory. You can't fall in love with a force, mm -hmm. with an energy, with an idea. And that's what much of the New Testament is saying. So I hope it doesn't de-pedestalize Jesus, but in fact puts him in monumental context. Jesus is the Christ, the revelation of the Christ in personal form. But I know because you weren't raised that way, it sounds like I'm diminishing him. I, I would be very mad at myself if I... I thought I was doing that. Yeah, I was just going to add that. I, I think I shared some of that initial resistance that Zach did just because of your very inclusive vision. And 
I say initial because there's, you know, there's at once like an attraction to it because like, of course, <laughs> I don't want to live in a world where like no one who has heard of Jesus is damned to hell. Like, exactly. <laughs> but then, yeah. and, and so, you know, it seems like there, there has to be a way to get to where you are. Exactly. Um, yes, but then yeah. there's also the, the feeling of like, you know, what do you mean? Like you can know God while rejecting the church that Jesus founded or, you know, how can it be optional um, there? Yeah. I share Zach's like resistance to like letting go of what's, you know, what makes the Catholic church special, I guess. Jesus is a huge <laughs> shortcut that just summarizes the whole thing. It's like pressing a button on your computer. There it is. There's the message. And without that, uh, a lot of people aren't going to get the message. So um, stay with it, pray with it, and I hope you'll see that it's good. But the idea is that, you know, other people, other cultures, other points in history all had access to the cosmic Christ. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, if we don't say that, we've condemned 98% of the humans who've ever lived on this planet to eternal loss. That's a very stingy, unloving God, if that's the way God created the universe. Uh, so for me, if the infinite God is infinite love revealed in Jesus, but that infinite love had to be available to native religions Hinduism, Buddhism, they use different symbols. We've just got the shortcut, Jesus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's good. You, A recurring theme in the book is unlearning religion. Um, yes, yes. I'm wondering if there was, what was the most important thing for, for you to unlearn about the faith that you were raised in? Or is there a turning point maybe that, you know, allowed you for all this to kind of click yeah, and here, what I'm going to try to say, I think I learned from Jesus. Most Western spirituality, reflecting Western civilization, has been a, a spirituality of climbing, achieving, performing, perfectionism, uh, proving yourself worthy uh, to an always demanding God. And what Jesus reveals is not a spirituality of ascent, but a spirituality of descent. That we come to God as my Father Francis and in contemporary world, uh, saints like Therese of Lisieux, what she called her little way. And you come to God much more through your mistakes than through achieving personal perfection. That's a, a, a 180 degree turn for certainly the way I was raised to understand Christianity. And I gave retreats. I'm now in my 51st year as a priest. I gave priest retreats all over the world. And that's the vast majority of priests and nuns. They, it was about climbing up, not about letting go and falling into reality as it is. That's the big switch. When, when that hit me already 
as a Franciscan novice when I was 19. That changed everything. And much of the rest of my life has been trying to ever deeper understand that. Yeah. Another one of the more counterintuitive, at least to me, um, explanations you have in the book is, is about original sin um, and how, you know, it's usually thought of this terrible thing. You know, we are born with this stain. Sure. There's nothing yeah. we can do about it and how that we're kind of trapped by that. But so I don't I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth and I might be getting this wrong. But one of the things I took away, you have this idea of that, you know, it's actually quite freeing <laughs> to know that quite. that we're all we all have this sin. So, you know, there's there's nothing I as an individual it's not special to me. And that means I'm not like responsible for getting rid of it because it's it's more corporate reality. Um I just I wanted to kind of hear more about how you got to that point. I developed that more in my next small book, What Do We Do With Evil? That evil is a corporate concept, as you just put it. In the book, uh, Universal Christ, I'm trying to say that goodness is a corporate concept. We are good by one another's goodness. We sin by one another's sin. It's all a shared reality. But Western individualism has told us we could take it upon ourselves to be privately good and privately bad. And this has not worked very well at all. In fact, I think it's produced much of the secularism that is now reflected in Europe and our culture, that the, the, the little individual person is too fragile, too small, to bear the, what Paul calls the weight of glory and the burden of sin. These are, first of all, corporate concepts. So the attempt of the church to communicate that corporate nature of evil was, uh, was the word original sin, created by St. Bonaventure, St. Augustine, excuse me, in the fourth century. So it's an unfortunate choice of words. Mm. Uh, and that's why I have one chapter in the book called Original Goodness, which is really what the first chapter of Genesis says. As you know, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good four times in a row, and then fifth time, it was very good. <laughs> and for some reason, this original creation story of Genesis 1, we jumped over and emphasized Genesis 3, which is talking about the fall, our so-called original sin. Now, I interpret that as people, men in particular, like to see themselves as problem solvers. So Genesis 3 gave us a problem to solve. And we priests got into sin management. And in, instead of, first of all, rejoicing in our inherent goodness by the indwelling spirit given to us from the moment of our conception. That's the good news. I this is something I struggle with because it, it it is very freeing. And then I always hear that voice come back and say, but of course you 
you do have to care about your your personal morality in a certain sense. Like, uh, but I wonder if so much of it is. I, I try to think of it in terms of. I think this idea has new purchase in our contemporary culture, particularly because particularly young people um, are starting to pay more attention. I think to systemic evils and system like we right like we we're now talking having a conversation about what systemic racism looks like in addition you know in addition to personal racism um but it's not to say that if we talk about if you know racism is or sin is systemic and corporate it's it can also be personal it's it's that the two is it that the two inform one another well put all right, I'm not trying to push any of my books, but it's a very small book. The one I just mentioned, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. What do we do with evil? The world is the first source. That's structural. The flesh is the second source, the individual. Growing out of the, the systems that have agreed that, well, it's good to be greedy, or it's good to be lustful, or uh, it's good to be racist, as you just said. Then the so-called devil is when it takes on the whole culture and becomes something that's not even considered evil anymore, but worshipped as good. So those were considered the three sources of evil, the world and the flesh and the devil And my professor would always come in and say very strongly, in that order, (laughs) the world So you just got it already. Okay. And we're coming coming to see that, that it's structural sin that is where the, the matrix in which evil grows. You mentioned how the way that we we talk about sin and goodness, um, you know, has led people to abandon religion because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to them. And, you know, there's a lot of hand wringing in Catholic and Christian circles about young people turning their back on, on the faith. Um, And in this book, you seem less alarmed than most, most religious people that I, that I talk to about this reality. Um, And you don't, seem to think they're actually becoming secular, but, but something else. Um, so I just wanted to get, get your take on the, the spirituality of the nuns, uh, the N O N E S, um, those who are turning back from institutional religion, at least. Well, it includes a whole spectrum, as you well know, many of whom are still sincere spiritual seekers of transcendence, of the holy, the divine. They might not use those words, but they're humble people. Uh, There's a lot who are caught up in the materialism of our culture and are uh, pretty satisfied to live in this, what Ken Wilber calls, flat earth society, where um, everything you see is enough It doesn't have to have deeper meaning. It doesn't need to be connected. It doesn't need to be pointing toward love. Uh, That's true secularism. But it's the whole spectrum. I meet people who call themselves secular who are, in fact, very spiritual. And, of course, I meet people who call themselves Catholic who are not spiritual in the least. (laughs) In the least. 
they're totally materialists. Totally. They go to Mass on Sunday, but they're materialists. So that's what you got to look for. Things are not usually as they seem. Is there, for those of us that are in the church and, you know, don't really want to condemn any of these people that are looking elsewhere, is there anything we can do or to be more inviting or to welcome those people in? What a beautiful way. What a nice way to ask it. Go ahead. I mean, that's basically the question because, you know, I still, for all its warts, I, there's, I, I do love the church and the community and and you want to be able to offer that to someone, especially someone who's maybe been hurt by it, but that's often the hardest conversation to have sometimes. It sure is. And you're speaking for millions of young people. It comes down to modeling. You know what Bill Wilson said for the 12-step program? We must promote ourselves by attraction, not promotion. And I think uh, that's still the best form of evangelization. If you can communicate uh, an interior groundedness, happiness, caring, peacefulness, I, I have no doubt people will come towards you and say, uh, what is it that makes you this way? Where do you draw meaning for your life? And then you can tell them about your Catholic faith. But to try to do it before that is usually a waste of time. It, it's, it only attracts people who want a tribe, uh, they don't really necessarily want God. They want a tribe. And maybe that's a start. I probably wanted a tribe when I joined the Franciscans. But uh, belonging to a tribe has substituted for the search of God for far too long, I'm afraid. I was worried that you were going to say the, the answer is conversion and not just marketing, because I can do the other pretty easy. <laughs> But <laughs> but the the way you're describing uh, how you know how to become more inviting uh, by by attraction uh, sounds a lot like Pope Francis, who ha- who I think has attracted um, younger people in in a new way, and and not so young people who maybe have been disillusioned with the Catholic Church. Um, so I, I'm wondering how you know he's he's a Jesuit, not a Franciscan, but he took the name Francis. Uh, what what's your take on on his papacy so far? Well, uh, I mean, we Franciscans are just in love with him, not just because he took the name. That doesn't mean that much, but that he so represents the best of Jesuit and the best of Franciscan. He's got the mind, the discernment, the clarity, the courage of a Jesuit, holding on to the simplicity and love of the poor and the outsider of a Franciscan. I just hope God preserves him for 10 more years. <laughs> he's, uh, he's a wonder to us, really. We're very blessed. I thought it was interesting that shortly after your book, The Universal Christ, came out, he releases uh, Fratelli Tutti, in which, you know, brothers and yes. sisters all, it, it, it did feel like a nice little sequel of some sorts to, to your book. Oh, I'm glad you heard it that way. I want it. <laughs> I don't think it was consciously, but uh, 
Yeah, we're on the same wavelength. Bono told me that he told Bono him, like this the superstar. Not like Bonaventure. <laughs> that this is Bono now, correct? Bono. Okay. <laughs> oh my god. We're friends. So uh, <laughs> he told me that he was he brought me up in conversation with Pope Francis. Oh and, wow. Uh, and Francis said he wanted to meet me. I think I'm too tired and weak to travel that far anymore. Mm. But uh, I was honored that he wanted to. Yeah. Something else you and uh, Pope Francis share uh, is I think there's uh, some resistance to to your <laughs> more inclusive message and uh, less concern for, you know, keeping the boundaries very clear and enforcing those. Um, what, so what do you think accounts for the resistance we're seeing to Pope Francis in, in the church right now? Well, or yourself. <laughs> or yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're good. You're good. Well, you know, in uh, several of my books, I have what we call the cosmic egg. You'll be able to picture this. It's easy. It's three, you know, like the Russian dolls, Mm -hmm. three enclosed domes. The smallest inner yolk of the egg is called my story. The second is called our story. The third, an outer dome of meaning, the white of the egg, I guess, is called the story. Now, you have to be able to feel good about my story, what you've had to go through. It's modern psychology. It's autobiography. You know, your Enneagram number, your temperament, all the things about yourself. You have to spend some time finding out it's good to be a part of our story. If you were raised Italian or whatever you were raised, or Catholic or Methodist. You've got to go through that. Now, the trouble is that more and more people are staying there. Mm. It's good to be black. It's good to be gay. It's good to be American. It's good to be Republican. Uh, And both of those are hiding places from the story, which transcends the, the previous two. It transcends them, but it includes them. So people who haven't learned that, you know, they hear people like me talking and Pope Francis talking. I'm not trying to put myself in his league by any means. But I'd like to think we're talking about the story. But if you haven't worked through my story and our story yet, it sounds scary. It sounds distant. It sounds radical. Well, it sounds to a lot of people like heresy, just like Jesus did. And that's not stretching the truth. How, uh, do, you, what, how, how do you tell the, the story? How do you describe it? The story it? <laughs> is the patterns that are always true. The one I usually use to give an example is the notion of forgiveness. I don't care what culture you are, what race you are, what gender you are, forgiveness heals. You don't have to be Christian to understand forgiveness. 
So when you find the perennial tradition, the universal truths that are true everywhere all the time, and you don't have to join my tribe to appreciate them, that's the story. One of the things I really appreciated about your work is you don't belittle the importance of, you know, building up uh, the my story. No, not at all. Not at all. Good. And it, and, it, and you, it, in a certain sense, you you say you do have to go through it. You have to. You have to. It, which <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, like, so I'm reading, I'm reading Universal Christ and I'm trying to think like, oh, no, normally when I'm reading books, I'm like, oh, this would be helpful for this person, this person, that person. And I'm like, when do I, when would I, who, who would I give Richard Rohr to? Like, who is, who did you yeah. write this book for? Is it someone for. who's still constructing their, 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 my story? Or is it someone who's looking to go beyond it? Yes. And the second group too. Those who are still writing our story. Now, I lump those groups together under the name Sincere Spiritual Seekers. People who love the truth, who love themselves, who love their neighbor, and are trying to love God, which is the universal truth. So I think that's who I'm writing for. But I'm so glad you heard the part of I'm legitimating, I mean, I I first got known in the 70s for teaching the Enneagram. I don't teach it much anymore, which I learned from my Jesuit spiritual director, by the way. Uh, So I'm very much into self-knowledge, discernment, dealing with your own shadow self. If you don't do that, most religion is just, very superficial. And I'm going to say it a second time. If you don't do that, most religion is very superficial. Mm. Thankfully, at America, you have to uh, do a Myers-Briggs test as part of, Myers- part of your on- <laughs> as part as your onboarding. We, we would be... <laughs> so we're all very self-actualized. <laughs> I'm an ENFP. Oh, excellent. <laughs> uh, of course here. you are. There are I so many we were, ENFPs yeah. among the Jesuits. <laughs> yeah. We, we would be doing a disservice <laughs> yeah. if we didn't get your Enneagram number, though. You want me to tell you? I think yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm a terrible one. You're one. <laughs> Just like Ignatius Loyola, I think. <laughs> Good company. <laughs> overly zealous, overly uh-huh. idealistic, overly perfectionistic. <laughs> and that's why uh, hmm. the downward journey was so appealing to me. It's yeah. very countercultural uh, or counterintuitive to my nature. Interesting. Yeah, I'm a one ENFP. Terrible. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Avoid it at all costs. <laughs> this is a, a good transition to talk about um, what does practicing all of this look like? In a certain sense, you can we can read books, we can think about it. Um, how do we, you know, in a very practical way, move beyond um, after we've built up our my story and we're looking to go to go out? How does that work start? Well, of course. Well, we got to admit that. Different people start in different places. A lot of people in history up to now actually began with our story. Like my parents' generation, who were poor German farmers. 
they didn't have much self-knowledge. They really didn't. They didn't have time for it. They were just survivors. Uh, so they knew they were German. They knew they were American. They knew they were Kansas farmers. Uh, most people before our lifetime began with our story. And that's why there's so many wars, because people's only identity was their group identity. Does that make sense oh, yeah. to you? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Group identity. I'm I'm French. I'm English. You know, I'm Catholic. I'm Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm Protestant. That's all they had, and uh, so we're this lucky generation that can spend time with my story, but relativize it a bit inside the context of our story. That I'm glad I'm Catholic. I'm glad I'm American. But I taught in too many countries to think America is the center of the world, as most of us are taught when we grow up in this country. And uh, visited too many people of too many religions to believe there aren't holy people in other world religions beyond Christianity and Catholicism. I'm still happy to be a Catholic. I'm happy to be an American, but I don't put all my eggs in that basket. I hope that doesn't shock you. No. It, it allows me to plant my feet and be happy where I planted my feet, but walk other places with happiness too. So as we are more <laughs> involved in the my story level as as modern people, yes, um, yes. You know, yes, maybe there's less war, but I think there are there seem to be other dangers. Um, you know, like despair. You like look at the levels of you know, yes, go like ahead. suicide or mental illness or yes. or just like losing yourself in consumerism. Like there's, I don't you, clearly in the book, like you're not a fan of <laughs> individualism. Um, so I'm wondering what now that we're in a world where it's less about our story, more about my story. What are what are the what are the things we need to move beyond that, not getting stuck there, especially when so many people are skeptical of, of the old institutions that gave people meaning? You know, for years up here at Ghost Ranch in northern New Mexico, I conducted male initiation rites. They're still going on, but I'm too old to give them anymore. And what, as I studied the world phenomenon of male initiation rites, they recognize that the the my story, if it was left to itself, became just what you're saying. It became a prison. It became a neuroses. It became a narcissism. And this is, I hope I'm not saying something unkind, but this is America today. We're a very neurotic country. (laughs) I had to go to other countries to meet people who are not so neurotic or so narcissistic. Uh, Our government could not get away with what it's become in the last years unless there were a lot of people equally narcissistic. Because when you're narcissistic yourself, you don't see it in your leaders. 
Now a mature person sees right through it, of course. So you're making a very good point that any one of them, if you overdo it, my story or our story, is sick. (laughs) Now I'm going to say something that will surprise you. And we call this spiritual bypassing. It's really fundamentalism. There's people who think they can do a nonstop flight to the story, to quote the Bible or quote the popes or quote a saint or follow all the laws and protocols of their denomination and think they've found it. They've completely ignored self-knowledge, critical self-knowledge especially, and they've avoided uh, any building of community with groups, which is the great school, of course, of everything, marriage itself being the smallest community. That totally describes, I think, my my journey. I certainly, when I when I got handed my Catholicism in high school, I was just like so psyched about what a cool the story it gave me. Um, for a while, I was just like really intent on, you know, being excited about capital R religion and um, being a bully about it, even sometimes and. It, it, I was so wanting to go take that, to just take that shortcut. It didn't make sense that I needed yeah. to double back. Very good. Thank you for having the humility and the honesty to say that. I would say the same. I was a pious little Catholic <laughs> boy, very, very conservative. <laughs> I'm almost 78 now. You know, it's it's gone through... 35 stages. Yeah. Oh, man, I got a lot of stages left then. (laughs) I think I'm on like stage two. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to think as as a woman, I had some special knowledge that made it so that I was (laughs) able to avoid all those stages. (laughs) Well, women, in terms of initiation, women do have a potential head start. Anyone in a one-down position has a head start. Do you understand? When you're forced into powerlessness and a second-class citizenry, there's a whole bunch of things you understand about the system. Ideally, not always true, but very often true. Mm. How have you come to understand that as, as a man? Come to understand what? Sort of the feminine, the feminine insight. Yeah. Well. Because I, uh, like, I would like more men to understand it. <laughs> <laughs> well, like my mother's generation, even mm. my sister's, my, in fact, today's the death anniversary of my older sister. She died last year on this day. Uh, they just never claimed their competence. They really thought they were, certainly my mother, less so my sisters, but that marriage was to serve their husband and their children. And it worked in the early years when they worshiped their little children and still loved their husband. (laughs) But uh, by the time so many women of that generation got to their 
late 40s, 50s, certainly 60s. It's amazing how many are bitter, angry, because they were never given time for growth, for setting out on their own journey and taking risks and making their own money, if if that's important. Uh, so when you understand that the excluded one, by reason of their, their persecution, oppression, suffering, they have a head start in understanding what the system worships. Mm. And the, the girl sees, well, it's all about power and control. It's all about power and control. It's not about truth. Now, we white boys like I am, I don't see that till the middle of life, that it's about power and control. I really think it's about truth. Are, are you following me at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Oh, man. And see, the woman, the, yeah. the handicapped person, the gay person, the black person, the Mexican who live all around me here, they come to that conclusion intuitively by their late teens. You understand that this system is screwed up. <laughs> Whereas a nice little white boy like me, it sure doesn't seem screwed up to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it seems just wonderful. Yeah. Because especially, you know, I was born in 43 during the Second World War. After the war, everything was made to order for an American boy from the lower middle class to succeed, to go through university without having a debt to pay off the rest of his life. I mean, I had it easy <laughs> compared to, mm -hmm. I bet, what you two have to go through. So the system worked for me. Mm -hmm. If I hadn't known the gospel and the Franciscan spirituality, I wouldn't have realized what a prison it was. Yeah. Is the answer for, you know, other little white boys like myself um, to, to get to know the gospel and Franciscan spirituality or, or, or what are some other practices? Well, spirituality yeah. too, if it, if it teaches you to, to move outside of home, like Ignatius's journeys away from home and sending his missionaries out there's two white boys driving around in the parking lot <laughs> in front of my house right now. I don't know if you can hear their motorbikes. No. They're just cir circling around as fast as they can. <laughs> oh, boy. They're, they're like a, a living image of what we're talking about. Oh, it's so true. Building up the desert dust. And anyway, yeah. God bless them. <laughs> yeah. Ignatius... Uh, did it a different way, but it, it exposed the early Jesuits to other worlds than their own ego. You know, the exercises, which you've probably both made. Huh? Have you? Actually, not no. Yet. No, we are. No, oh, not yet. <laughs> no we are. Well, are they, for some reason, they don't give us 30 days off every year to do the exercises. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. But, uh, when you go through the exercises... <laughs> It's a magnificent program to destabilize the imperial ego. 
Let me repeat it. Destabilize the imperial ego. And Ignatius had the insight to know that that was necessary. And is that by imperial ego, do you mean like the the need to control and overpower people? Using religion to be holier than thou, Mm. to be powerful, to be important, to be right, especially. Ignatius was the one, too, like me. And that's our sin, the need to be right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And he must have recognized it in himself. Uh, and and recognized he wanted to move beyond it. So someday do the exercises. Amen to that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Father Richard, you've been really generous with your time. We have just one quick thing we want to hit. When people listen to this, uh, Lent will have just started. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, if you have any advice for uh, uh, maybe maybe learning to destabilize the ego this Lent. Because um, right now, I'm I'm staring at Lent in the face, and I can't believe that you know, last Lent isn't over yet. Um, so it really feels unnecessary to pile a second one on. Um, 2020 has been one big one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any recommendations uh, this year besides maybe yeah. giving up chocolate? <laughs> See, don't steer the boat yourself. Because that's the ego trying to defeat the ego, which only makes you more <laughs> egoic. Mm-hmm. So it's much more accepting the little humiliations, the little disappointments that come your way every day, the little moments of lack of comfort. And you didn't get your place on the subway or <laughs> just all day letting go of the comforts, the consolations, the, uh, you know, like because I'm a priest. I've grown used to people calling me father and looking up to me and treating me with respect. And more and more in this secular world, I don't get that. In fact, now they hate priests. (laughs) (laughs) And I've had to really learn to love that because that's what Jesus, the life Jesus lived. It wasn't one of being admired, but being hated. So accept the limitations are you don't get any dessert offered you. Uh, But when you set out to heroically uh, deny yourself dessert, there's a place for it, but not a very big place Mm. (laughs) because it's, it's hidden heroism, which is hidden ego. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's a little bit. Totally. uh, yeah, Uh-oh. or a hidden diet plan, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is hidden vanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Boys uh, went away on their motorbikes. <laughs> now, I'm very happy. They, they've stopped going in circles uh, and they're going to the margins. <laughs> now I'm comfortable again. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, Father Richard, thank you so much for talking with us. We do You're have welcome. one. We have one final question that I hope you'll. Uh, uh, humorous with uh, that we asked all of our guests, yes. um, including our previous guest, uh, Pete Holmes, who uh, basically oh, canonized you. <laughs> Pete. He is so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. He was he's so lovely to talk to. And so, yeah, he clearly has 
you know, gained a lot of wisdom through through his his twists and turns in life. Um, but we want to ask you the same question. If you could canonize anyone, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why? You know, I the one that comes to mind uh, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm. a Lutheran theologian, a Lutheran minister. I drove across Germany once, believe it or not, with his old girlfriend. <laughs> she's, she's my age. And I always loved the writings of Bonhoeffer. And I said to her, why doesn't the Catholic Church canonize Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who saw through Nazism when most of the Catholic Church and most of the Lutheran Church totally missed the point. I mean, he deserves major canonization. But of course, we won't do it because he isn't Roman Catholic. And I always thought it'd be such a wonderful ecumenical statement to uh, canonize Dietrich. All right. Well, on this show, we can. <laughs> so, well, there you go. St. Uh, Bonifer. <laughs> just because I met his girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> Which I just like that. Uh, that's a story. Holy moly. Like, <laughs> blowing my mind a little it bit. Is. I couldn't believe it. We went from Munich to Hamburg, so it was a whole day. Mm-hmm. And we got to talk, 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 talk. What a wonderful woman. And she yeah, let amazing. me see his real soul, you know. Yeah. She still yeah. loves him. Wow. Understandably. There's a there's that a listener out there who's writing up a screenplay for... for uh, I hope they do. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, well, you're both a delight. Thank, thank you. you so oh, much. Thank uh, people, you. we should let people know that uh, Universal Christ is out, just out on paperback, newly released. Uh, it came out February 16th, and it's got a companion book of reflections that's all brand new called Everything is Sacred that's co authored with Patrick Boland, which you can get wherever books are sold. Um, Father Richard, thank you so much. This has been a real treat. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed you. I yeah. wish I could see your face, but another time. <laughs> another time or we'll come to you. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media and New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. 
Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.